You're listening to the Covenant Original Series, Here to There. Life is a process, here to there, but God has a purpose for us that can only be found when we discover how to have peace in the process. When we view our process through the lens of God's providence, we will have peace. When we walk in our process with the knowledge of God's promise, we will have purpose. And when we engage our process through God's presence, we will have power. Today we begin a brand new series called From Here to There. And I'm going to get you started quick. Um, Open up to uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are going to be. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry about it. Uh, You can read along, follow along with us on the screen. Um, Also, if you have a a smartphone, you can jump onto YouVersion and open up the Bible. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. But while you're jumping over to Daniel chapter 3, I just kind of want to give a a brief synopsis, as it were, of what we're going to be talking about this month. We're really going to be focusing in on this idea of, of process. Now, how many of us know that life is a process? Yeah, would you agree with that? And so for many of us, we are in the middle of a process within a process. It's like inception, right? It's a dream within a dream. It's a process within a process. Because life, although it's from here to there, birth to death, it's also filled up with many processes, some of which are more difficult than others. Maybe you're in the process of of raising a teenager, Maybe you're in the process of trying to lose weight. Maybe you're in the process of, of getting a house. Maybe you're in the process of going through a divorce. Maybe you're in the process of breaking free from an addiction. I don't know what the process you're in is, but whatever it is, processes can be difficult. Sometimes a process can feel like a wilderness. Can I get an amen on that one? Yeah? You ever feel like you're just walking through the wilderness continually? One wilderness to the next. It's like, God, I know that you're a God of seasons, but do they all have to be winter? Right? It's like, could I get a spring sometime? Could I maybe get a summer? And sometimes it just feels even like we're repeating the same process over and over. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God wants you to learn something, but because you haven't learned it, he's taking you through the same process over and over and over. And that's very true. Because God is a God of process. And God is a God who works through seasons. God is a God who who wants to draw us closer to himself. And so he uses this idea of process here to there. But I want you to know this morning, before we even jump into Daniel 3, that God has purpose for us that can only be found when we discover how to have peace in the process. Wouldn't it be nice to have peace in the process? Wouldn't it be nice to have peace in the wilderness? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to walk through something and and regardless of how easy it is or how difficult it is, to know the peace of God? And so today we're gonna talk about how you can have peace among other things as you walk through the process. Now, we've got a big chunk of scripture that we're gonna start in, in Daniel chapter three. It's a big old chunk of, of scripture, it's a lot. Um, but I think it's definitely worth it. And this is one of those classic Bible stories, right? I, I refer often to the fact that I was raised in church. My dad's a Baptist minister, pastor, has been for, for, for years, as long as I, I, I can remember. And there's always those classic Bible stories. Remember the flannel graph? Remember those? Remember when you used to stick Bible characters up on a green flannel screen and, and it was the closest thing to video games and movies that you'd ever seen as a Christian kid? Remember that? 
If you're with me, then you get what I'm talking about. It was either that or McGee and me. So it was like those were your two options that you had as a Christian kid. Um, and, and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is one of those classic stories. So I want to talk about that today, but I want to kind of talk about it maybe from a different perspective. So here we go. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. We up? We good? It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll get there. King Nebuchadnezzar, there we go, made an image of gold. Let me hear you say Nebuchadnezzar. That is a mouthful, no matter who you are. That's a difficult first date right there. Honestly, let's just be honest. What's your name? Oh, my name's Sherry. What's your name? My name is King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's just like a, can we call you Nebi? All right. So Nebi made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. How tall is that? Very tall. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the king sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates. You get the point. He went and told everybody who was anybody and any leaders of any provinces to gather and come to him to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. Then all these important people gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, now watch us now. You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and oddly enough, the bagpipe, <laughs> and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not, verse 6, fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Whoa, that got real, real fast, didn't it? It's kind of, it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. I, I thought the story was going to be, hey, guys, come over here. Look at this really cool image and bow down and worship it. If not, like, you're going to hurt my feelings because, you know, I made it. Nope, it's like you will be burned alive. He goes from zero to 100 like that. He's very serious, very, very serious, that we will all bow down and worship this image, verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, and bag, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, therefore, at a certain time, I'm sorry, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, Live forever. Now pause right there. This tells us something. Two things that we can learn already from this passage. Number, number one, Nebuchadnezzar thinks of himself as a god. Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as deity. Number one, he set up a false idol, a golden image of himself, I guarantee you, larger than any other false god that they had to date. Very large, made of gold, pure gold. So this, he, he demands to be worshipped. But then number two, look at what these men say in verse 9. They come to the king and say, O king, live forever. This is not just a term of endearment. This is a term that is demanded by a king who views himself and his reign as eternal. In fact, it is more rightly even uh, translated, O king, you are eternal. O king, live forever. O eternal one, Nebuchadnezzar thinks of himself as a god, and he demands that everybody else uh, treat him as such. They declare to the king, live forever. Verse 10, you, O king, have made a decree 
that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But king, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Would you read those names with me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's just say them one more time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men to the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, 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 now. Okay, guys, okay, now. Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of these instruments, fall down and worship the image that I've made. If you do that, all is well and all is good. Okay, pause. This should really tell us something. Because maybe what you don't know about Nebuchadnezzar is that he was a tyrant. He was a ruthless, grotesque king who viewed himself as sovereign over all, including your life. Nebuchadnezzar was known as being a king who would capture the enemy, skin them alive, and hang them from his walls. That's the kind of man this was, a person who would literally pull people limb from limb, literally. Also, if you didn't bow down to worship, throw you in, into a fire and burn you alive. That's, that's the kind of guy we're talking about. And so this king, because he's talking to leaders, he gives them another chance. We should see this. They should see this in his mind. They should see this as a gracious God, a gracious deity offering a morsel of mercy to these people. And so let's see how old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. <laughs> he says, but if you don't do this, immediately be cast into a fire. And he says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Not just that statement. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? My hands which built this beautiful nation. My hands which can rip your life from you. My hands which have built this, this, this beautiful image of myself. These God-like deity-infused hands. Who's the God who will save you from these hands? you got to love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Look at this, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> can we just pause there for a minute because I feel like sometimes we read scripture and we forget that it's history it's reality like there were three Jewish dudes who actually said that to a Hitler like king uh, do, do you get that because put yourself in that scenario we don't do this enough we like read that like wow I want the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego I don't think we could handle the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't think we even understand the level of courage because here is a burning, fiery furnace. Here is a tyrannical king who is saying, bow, and these guys say, we don't even have to answer you in this, king. Number one, notice that they don't even pay him the, quote, respect is, that is due to him as a deity. They don't say, oh, king, live forever. Thank you for your grace. They just say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. They don't even call him king. We don't need to answer you in this matter. And he says this, Verse, verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Let me hear you say the word able. Come on, come, come on, come on. If we're, you already made the effort to get up and come to church. 
You already made that effort. You might as well go all the way, right? God is able. I'm here to say able. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. Let me hear you say, he will. Out of your hand, O king. But then they say this, verse 18. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar obviously was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times, more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and throw them into the fiery furnace. Verse 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks, tunics, hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. If you were to take time and study the scripture and, and kind of walk through it, you would understand that that was Jesus Christ in the fire, in the midst of the fiery furnace, standing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How awesome is that, by the way? Can you imagine that scenario? Can you imagine somebody saying, if you don't just worship this image, I'm going to throw you in a fire, and you'd be like, okay, whatever. I know God's able to save me. I believe he's going to, but even if you don't, you can't do nothing to me because I serve a living, I, I serve a living God. And then they throw you to the fire, and then Jesus is like, <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to do. And now I'm here with you, standing in the middle of a fiery furnace. And this king says, I thought we threw three people, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the, fl- the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the, he changes his tune, doesn't he? Most high God, come out here. Guys, come here. You can just imagine him saying like, guys, for real, come here. This is crazy. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. Man, can't get that evil streak out, can he? (laughs) I'm just saying. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to focus on a couple things here. I know God is able. I believe that he will, but even if he doesn't. I know God is able. I believe he will, but even if he doesn't, we will serve him. We will follow him. We will worship him. I know God is able. I believe he will. I know God is able. I believe he will. I know God is able. And I believe that he will. See, part of the problem with this statement is that too often we leave it without the end. 
How many times have you heard a sermon preached like this? I know God is able, and I believe that he will, period. I know God is able, and I believe he will. And here's the problem with the sermon like that. Here's the problem with the teaching. Here's the problem with a theology that says, I know God is able, and I believe he will. It is almost correct. Because how many of us would stand up and say, like, yes, God is able. God is able to do anything he wants. Would you agree? God is able. God can do anything. We're talking about God, the God who in the beginning, who before the beginning was fully content in being God himself. Did not create anything because he was lonely or bored, but created everything for his glory, created everything to worship him. The same God that opens his mouth and stars and galaxies pour forth. The same God who has been to the beginning, been to the end because he is both the Alpha and the Omega, that supreme providential God is able to accomplish anything. Amen? Amen. We all agree with that. We believe God is able. I believe he can. Of course he can. God can do anything he wants. He is not limited. We serve a limitless God. God is not bound by anything but himself. God is the center. God is the definition of power. All-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent. God is able. He can do anything. So the problem becomes, because we both we, we would both jump on that, you and I. We would both say, like, yeah, I believe God is able, and I, I believe that he's going to. I believe that he can. But the problem comes when we don't say, but even if he doesn't, I will still serve him. The, because sometimes God doesn't. Fill in the blank. So I know God can. I believe he's going to. But what happens when God doesn't? Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, a member of my family got cancer. And man, she loved Jesus. And we laid hands on her. We prayed over her. Pastors came over, prayed over her. And I knew God was able to save her. We believe that God is able to heal. Amen? I, be- I knew God was able. And I believed that he would. But my grandmother died. God didn't heal her of her cancer. Now, what do you do with that? When you know God is able, you believe that he's going to, but then he doesn't. What do you do? Maybe, maybe for some of you, you've, you've walked through a very nasty divorce, the process of being divorced. And I know that's taboo in church. We don't, we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to talk about real things that real people go through. I get that, okay? Let's just keep it up here like high theology so we don't have to worry about it affecting our lives. But let's just bring it down to reality for a minute. Some of us have walked through a divorce before. And you know God is able to heal your marriage and you believe that he's going to, but then it doesn't heal. And you're in that process. See, what do you do in those moments? Hmm? Those are the real moments, aren't they? What do you do in those moments? Well, if you have an incorrect theology that says, I believe God is able and I believe that he can. I know God is able. I believe that he can, period. If that's all that it is, if that's all that's preached, then guess what? It's left lacking. Either God failed or you failed. That's it. Has God failed? Then have you failed? What if it's neither? What if it's God taking you through a process so that you can learn more of who he is? He's revealing himself 
to you. Maybe God doesn't do these things that we ask him to do sometimes because he wants you to know him better. Maybe sometimes God doesn't give you what you're asking for because in getting what you ask for, it will pull you farther from him. Instead of giving you what you want, he's giving you what you need. But sometimes we'd rather have what we want than what we need. And so sometimes we say, man, I want that house. Man, I want that car. Man, I want that girl. Man, I want that thing. Man, I want that stuff. Man, I want that guy. Whatever it is. And we're, God, God, that's what I want. I'm putting it there. Like, I'm focusing on it. And God, I know that you're able to. And I'm believing that you will. I'm believing that you will. I know you're able. I'm believing that you will. And then God doesn't. And we're like, what's the deal, God? What? What's the deal? I know you're able. And I believe that you would. Okay, so that means I need more faith. I need more faith. Okay, I need more faith. So I need to pray more. So I need to go to church more. I need to pray more. I should probably get involved in one of those small groups. Okay, I'll do that. Maybe I'll book a meeting with the pastor. Maybe that'll give me some extra points. Um, and then with the big guy, okay, so I'll do that. Then we do all those things. And then we, God still doesn't, quote, come through for us. And then we're like, okay, I guess I still need more faith. What else could I do? Maybe I'll give more money. Maybe I'll sign up for one of those missions trips. I know I'll pick up three of those backpacks out there, fill those up for some, for some kids. That'll get me some points. So I'll work harder. That'll grow my faith. I better read more. I better pray more. And so we're doing all these things to earn favor from a God who says I love you unconditionally with an agape love. There's nothing you could do that can make, you love you, make me love you any more or any less. Why are you working so hard at earning a love that's freely given? It's because we have a faulty theology that says, I know God is able, and I believe that he's going to, but we forget that sometimes he doesn't. Are you with me, church? Sometimes he doesn't. And in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he did, but there are times when he doesn't. You said, well, give me an example. Okay, let's use Jesus as an example. Remember the night before, one of the nights before Jesus' crucifixion? Remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he gets on his knees and he prays so strongly that Scripture says that he, he wept blood. That's intense prayer. And do you remember what Jesus said to his father? God, if there is any other way to accomplish this task, then, then let's do that. If there's any other way than me being crucified to accomplish the gospel, taking root in salvation, taking place on this earth, then let's do it that way. But your will be done. What is Jesus saying? I know you're able. I know that you can. I believe that you can. But even if you don't, I'm still going to trust you. But guess what? <laughs> what took place in Christ's life? He's murdered. He's martyred. He was hung from a cross. See, sometimes we have to surrender and submit to God's plan in the process. So I want to be able to get to my sermon here today, if that's okay. That was all my intro. Sorry. Um, all that to say, life's a process. <laughs> We're all in process. But I want you to know that there's a point to the process. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you some very preachery points because I want to be sticky, but just because they're sticky and just because they might rhyme or I'll start with the letter P because we're in a series about process doesn't invalidate them, okay? In fact, I just want you to remember them because here's what I want more than anything for us. I want us to grow in Jesus. First off, we exist as a church to seek and save the lost. I want you to meet Jesus, truly meet Jesus. 
and I want you to grow. If, if the only growth that happens in your life centers around like an hour on a Sunday morning, then you're missing out, truly. If your experience with Jesus happens when you show up here, that, that's not it. We here at, at this church, we believe, and this should be at every church, we believe that Sunday is just the start when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. We have small groups that meet throughout the week. There's a community of faith here, people that would love to sit down and talk with you one-on-one. You must engage in Scripture throughout the week. But I want to encourage you this morning, help kind of push this in in a stronger way. So here's point number one. Point number one, write this down if you could. When we view our process through the lens of God's providence, we will have peace. When we view our process through the lens of God's providence, we can have peace. Let's define providence real quick. Providence is the means by which God directs all things towards a worthy purpose. God is in control of all things. He directs all things to a worthy purpose. Purpose, seen and unseen to a worthy purpose. So when we, ha- we can have peace in our process when we view it through the lens of God's providence. Romans 8, 28 says it like this. And we know that God causes, say that with me, all things. Oh, come on, church. We know that God does all things, works all things, all things, all things for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of, of, of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, providence means that I can rest and trust that God will supply my needs. In our student sea life this last week, we asked this question. We said, um, what is it in your life that you need? Everybody raised their hand, of course, like food, water, air, Netflix, you know, it was like, whatever. I was like, all right. And then we asked this follow-up question, well, is there anything you need in your life more than Jesus Christ? And the one kid raised his hand, he's like, well, yeah, I need food. But do you, do you need food? Like, like, let's get down to it. Do you need food more than you need Jesus? He's like, well, if I don't have food, I'll die, and then I can't come to church. That's what he said. Good point, buddy. When it really comes down to it, is there anything more that we need? I mean, Scripture says, Philippians 4.19, look at this. It answers its own question. And it says something that oftentimes we miss. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Then what does it say? In Christ Jesus. See, God has given us everything we need found in Christ Jesus. How many of us know that there is... There's a way in which that we can be persecuted, not have food, not have water, even lose our life, even lose our life, and yet Christ is still all that we need. In Christ, we have everything we need because this life is not all there is. And and this is part of the problem because I think for a lot of us, we have a religious view of Jesus. This is a non-religious view of Jesus. This is a relational view of Jesus. This is a saving Messiah view of Jesus. A view that says, I desire Jesus more than air. I desire Christ more than food. He is all my soul needs. Jesus Christ. 
And, and when we begin to view our process through the lens of God's providence, which means that God in Christ Jesus has given us everything we need, we begin to have a peace. Because we begin to realize, no matter what this world brings to me, no matter what is taken from me, no one can take Christ away from me. I have everything I need. God has already given me all that I need, supplied all my needs through the man, through the God, Jesus Christ. Point number two. Point number two. When we walk in our process, so first we said, when we view our process, number two, when we walk in our process with the knowledge of God's premise, we will have purpose. When we walk in our process with the knowledge of God's premise, we will have purpose. So what is God's premise? All right. This is a little tough, okay? It's probably going to hurt somebody's feelings. I hate to do that, kind of, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? What is, what is God's premise? What is the foundation of God? What is God's priority? According to Scripture, God's priority is his glory. God's number one priority is his Glory, maybe here's another way to ask it. What is at the center of God's universe? For many of us, we might have been told, me. I am at the center of God's universe. But the truth is, do you know who is at the center of God's universe? Do we know who? God. God is at the center of God's universe. God is God's priority. And God's priority is that he receives all glory. And maybe you might say, well, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I don't really think I like that. What do you mean you don't like that? Well, I mean, I, I hate to sound like bad, but that makes God sound a little arrogant, a little egotistical, like, oh, you're the center of your own universe? Wow, big head much? You know what I mean? Let me ask you a question. Who else should be the center of God's universe? Who else is the supreme being? Is there anything more powerful than God? Is there any more supreme, anything more supreme than God? Is there anything larger than God? We've already established that God is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the all-powerful, content within himself, perfect community. He created all things to bring him glory, including you and me. Your purpose in life is to bring God glory. That is your purpose. Not to even be happy, not even to be satisfied, not even to be fulfilled, not even to have nice things and have a soft life. Your purpose is to bring God glory. The process you're walking through, the valley you're walking through, the mountaintop that you're on, the wilderness that you're in, all of it ultimately is for the glory of God, to bring him glory. And so when you walk through these dark times, you can find purpose knowing that you are bringing God glory. Man was created from the beginning in God's image so that he might image forth God's glory. Are you with me? Are you with? I know it's a hard truth. We like to think we're at the center of God's universe, but we're not. Because if we were at the center of God's universe, then that would mean that God serves us. That God esteems us higher than himself. But we were created to bring glory to God. God says, if you don't even glorify me, then the rocks and the trees and the stars will declare my glory. 
The point of us, the point of all that exists is to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16 says this, let your light so shine among men that you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify or give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. I had a conversation after first, the first worship experience. And somebody, we were just talking about this. And they said, you know, that passage made me really think about this understanding that we as followers of Jesus should be different. We, we, we don't need to be judgmental, but we should be different. And I, and I would ask you, maybe that's why so many people who grow up in church leave the church. Because they don't see a difference. I feel like I already offended you today, so I might as well just keep going with it. Is that all right? Okay. Maybe the reason so many of our kids leave our churches when, we, when they graduate is because they've seen zero difference. Sure, they've, 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 they've gone to church. They've gone to church camp. They've gone to youth group. They've, they've you know, they, they had to listen to Salty the Psalm book when they were six. You know, like all that stuff, right? But then they're raised by parents who only go to church on Sunday only open the Bible on a Wednesday, and there's nothing different about us. What is different about us? Scripture says that our light should shine among men, that they may see your good deeds. In other words, that they may see that there is something different about you, and when there is something different about us, it brings God glory. Is it difficult to live differently in this day? Yes, It is difficult, and it is increasingly difficult every day because it's so normal to do this because this is what everybody does, but God calls us to live here and do this, and so even though everybody's doing this, we're to live this way, which puts us in a completely different process, but it also shows the difference. So when people look and say, you're not like this. Why aren't you like this? Scripture says it gives us an opportunity to stand up and give a reason for the hope that is within us. Too often, we don't engage in gospel conversation. Is this making sense so far? We don't engage in gospel conversation. We can't get into them because there's nothing different about us or our friends who don't know Jesus. Nothing. Well, I go to church. So do your Muslim friends. Well, I go to small groups. So do Jehovah Witnesses. They kill us on knocking on doors. They do a better job than you do and me. Oh, my Jewish friends, they know the Bible better than you do. Do you see what I'm saying? What's different about you? You're not different because you go to a place and read from a holy book and talk about God. That doesn't make you different. You know what makes you different? You know what makes you different? That you have the risen Savior who left his Holy Spirit to live inside of you and shape you and develop you and change you through the process of life. But you will not be shaped and you will not be changed and you will not be different if you ignore walking through the process. You can ignore the process, but you can't bypass the process. A couple weeks ago, I had to have my tires changed on my van. That's fun. And uh, we knew that the tires were going bad. You, you know, like when you can hear them. And then you go and then somebody walks by and they like literally say like, whoa, how those things not exploded yet? And you're like, yeah, grace of God. You know what I mean? 
I'm a pastor, so I got an extra 5% of my tires. You know, I don't know. That's not true. Um, <clears throat> and so I was like, oh, I don't want to get tires yet. So we just, like, parked the van. Because <laughs> that'll solve the problem. So we parked the van. The problem was, uh, like a week later, we are like, well, we got to go somewhere. And so I got in the van. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, we got to get tires. <laughs> because getting out of the process didn't change the process. I still had to go through the process. Still had to go through the process of getting these tires. I can ignore it, but the process is still there. And, and that's what I want you to know today. God is constantly trying to draw you to himself. And you can either ignore the process, but you can't bypass it. You gotta walk through it. You gotta walk through the process. And what I want you to know first and foremost is that when we walk through the process with the knowledge of God's premise, I'm sorry, that we can have peace in the process. But number two, when we walk through the process with the understanding of God's premise, which is that all things were created for his glory, you can have purpose, your purpose in life. And whether you're seven years old or 75 years old, your purpose in life is to bring God glory. And that's not something you graduate into, and that's not something you graduate out of, and that's not something you retire from. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. Now, you can kick back on a beach and retire and live it up, but you better be bringing God glory on that beach. And if you're eight years old and you're walking into school, your goal and your purpose, listen to me, young person, is to bring God glory with your life. And all that you say and all that you do, listen to me, Dad, your goal, yes, is to be a loving father and to be a loving husband and to provide and, and to set the tone of Jesus. But your goal is to bring God glory with your family. Yes, I want you to be successful. Go chase your dreams. Go figure yourself out. Figure out what you want to do. But in the process of figuring out what makes you happy and what makes you satisfied, bring God glory. That's not something we can defer when we get there. That's something we're, to call, we're called to do now. When we walk in the process with the knowledge of God's premise that everything we do is created for his glory. Everything we do is for his glory. Everything we do. Then you'll have purpose. Lastly, Lastly, when we engage our process, so number one, remember, number one, we view our process. Number two, we walk in our process. And number three, when we engage our process through God's presence, we will have power. When we engage our process through God's presence, we will have power. How many of us know that there is a way that we can walk through something without engaging it? Right, you know what I'm talking about? Just kind of like just randomly like, just, uh, I'm just walking. But that's not like engaging. One of the scariest things in my life, honestly, is uh, my children's rooms after dark. One of the most terrifying, terrifying places ever. Because there are landmines of Legos and dinosaurs and cars everywhere. And so I really have to engage the way that I walk. I have to walk strategically, feeling out each step. You know what I mean? Because if not, if I just walk haphazardly, I'm, I'm going to lose a leg. I, I am going to lose a leg with the Legos that are there. It's, it's terrifying. There is a way to walk through a process haphazardly. You are not, to meant, you are not meant to walk through this life haphazardly. Are, are you listening to me? But this is what so many of us do. We just walk and we bump into things. Oh, there's a girl. Oh, okay, well, let's get married. Oh, there's a car. Oh, I lost this. Oh, I had. That's not how you're called to walk. That's not how you're meant to live. You are meant to engage the process. And when you engage the process through God's presence, you will have power. Power. Isaiah 41 says it like this in verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. 
Some of us need to hear that today, don't we? Because we've thought that God has left us. We feel abandoned in this wilderness. We feel alone in this process. And yet God says in Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I'm not gone. You need to engage my presence in your process. Matthew 28, Jesus says, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. See, for some of us, we think that the presence of God is this, is this thing, this mysterious cloud of God that we have to like, like we show up and it's here. Guess what? God's presence is here. It's always here. Do you know why it's here? Because the people of God are gathering together. God's presence is here. But it's your job to engage in God's presence. It's your job to engage God's presence. What does that mean? It means this. It means when you leave this place, open up scripture. Open up God's word. It means that you need to engage in the words of God. Do you know that scripture is truly God's word? I wonder sometimes why we even read the Bible. Do you ever wonder? Ask yourself, be honest, why do you read the Bible? I think for many of us, we read the Bible because it eliminates some guilt. Well, I haven't read the Bible for a while. I should probably, all right, well, here, let's open up to Malachi, Malachi, I don't know. Either way, man, it sounds like a painter. Okay, I'm just going to read from Malachi. And then we start reading, and then we don't get it, and we're like, all right, well, I read, I'm good. And then it's like, <laughs> is that why God gave us his words? If it's not that, maybe it's not elimination of guilt. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe it's because we, we have a friend that we're going to talk to. We're going to make sure that we sound like we know what we're talking about when we talk to them. So we're like, okay, I know they're going through something tough, so let me find something we Google. What verses to tell my friend when going through a tough time? Oh, Matthew, Matthew 28. Okay, let me see that one. Matthew 28, 10. That one says... Um, I'm with you always. No, that's Matthew 28, 20. Okay, cool. So then we go to our friend, and our friend says, man, I'm really going through a tough time. And then you say something like, oh, you know what? I understand. You know, I, if I'm remembering the words of Jesus correctly from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, 20, he says, I am with you always, lo, even until the end of the age. And then our friends are like, wow, you are so spiritual. Oh, no, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I really try to be. You know, it's like, why do you read the Bible? Is it for that purpose or is it for that purpose? Neither one of those is correct. You know why we read the Bible? It's because it's God's words. It's because we're engaging God's presence within us. See, Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Jesus rises from the dead, which what kind of a bummer is this to his disciples? Like, think about it. He, he really put them through the ringer. They followed him. He's dead. Now they're like, what's going on? Everything we left our families in life for, now it's over. And Jesus shows up, hey guys, like, what? You're a ghost. I'm not a ghost. Come over here, put your hand in my side, put your, you know, put, oh my word, this is awesome. Yes, finally, now everybody's gonna believe us. Oh, this is gonna be great. Oh, hey guys, I'm, I'm leaving. What do you mean? Why? Oh, I want you to finish it up. You got this. It's like LeBron, and it's like LeBron leaving in the fourth quarter. Hey, you guys finish up. All right, I'm out of here. It's like, no, no, we really need you. We can't play basketball without you. Um, anyway, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm going to leave you with the Spirit, and the Jesus in you, the, the God in you is better than me being beside you. 
And so we read God's word because it stirs up this spirit inside of us. It, it illuminates God's word and, and, it, and, it, and it allows us to walk through the process with power. It allows us to know that we're not alone. And for some of you, you have not heard the word of God or the, felt the presence of God or the spirit of God in your life for so long because you've been opening up the Bible, reading out of guilt or reading out of for nuggets of wisdom that you can pass along so you look like you're so smart when we need to fall in love we need to beg God that we fall in love with his word because it allows his presence to break forth I promise you if you begin walking through your process whatever your process is and we're going to open it up this month we're going to open up these processes that we're all walking through but if you begin walking if you begin viewing uh, your process through God's providence you will have peace when when you begin to when you begin to walk through the process with the knowledge of God's premise you you will begin to develop this 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 purpose and and then when you engage your process through God's presence you will have power you will have power you don't need to be alone God has not abandoned you he's he's simply drawing him you to himself and I would say this in closing, our band's going to come forward or whatever we're going to do for closing. But I would also say this. Oftentimes we, we view from here to there and we want to get there, right? But if just getting there were possible, God wouldn't make us walk through a process to get there. See, oftentimes it's what we learn from here to there that sustains being there. It's what we learn about God in the process. It's, it's what we learn about the nature of God in the process and, and the attributes of God. It's, 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 it's after we've been to hell and back and, and, and know that God was there with us every step of the way that it deepens our faith in Jesus. Are you with me? It's, it's after we've been through something nasty and, and dirty and hard and yet we have a Savior who we can lean into that we realize that he is faithful. And so it's that kind of relationship, it's that kind of process that will bring us out to the other side with an understanding that there is a purpose for our process. Thanks for listening to this message from our series, Here to There at Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.